five blind boys of Mississippi singing Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. I'm Sam Biagetti, and this is Historian-splaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. This is the first lecture of this podcast series. Uh, And to introduce myself, I am a historian with a PhD in early American history. And I have taught classes at Columbia University and Barnard College. Right now, I am just living in New England, uh, where I'm also an antique dealer uh, on the side. And I'm starting this podcast, Historian Explaining, uh, in order to respond to the kinds of questions that I often get, not only from students, but from friends and family about uh, aspects of history that they're confused about or suspicious about and that they want clarified. Uh, This is going to be a big picture uh, kind of podcast and I'm going to try to give you the kind of historical rigor and quality that you should get from a real serious academic lecture but uh, talk like a human being which is always what I try to do uh, in my classes. So I'm going to focus particularly on historical myths, peeling away myths that distort or falsify uh, the past. And probably you've seen there are a lot of podcasts and blogs that talk about historical myths, and they tend to be about sort of neat little anecdotes, you know, things you might have been told wrong in fifth grade. Uh, George Washington didn't really have wooden teeth. Uh, And that's true. George Washington didn't really have uh, wooden teeth. And there are all kinds of, you know, little myths and misconceptions like that, that you could spend, you know, all day and all night uh, clearing up and making clickbait uh, about. Uh, And I'm not going to get too deeply into those. They may come up once in a while, but I'm going to try to tackle the big myths, Uh, the myths that really structure how we think about the entire past and how we ended up where we are now today, okay? Myths fundamentally are stories that try to justify and rationalize and explain why the world looks the way it does today. Uh, And myths might be sometimes true. They're not necessarily false. They can be true or false. Uh, But they're very dangerous and pernicious when they're false because uh, false myths or partly false myths not only uh, distort what happened uh, in the past, but they distort what's going on today, right? Because they give you a false sense of why things are the way they are now. So uh, when I try to peel away these myths, I have an agenda, right? I'm trying to change the way we think about how the world works and how we ended up in this modern world that we see around us today. And I think that it's probably an appropriate time to do this because right now, you know, in 2017, as I'm speaking, we are in a time of a lot of doubt and a lot of uncertainty and a lot of anxiety about whether the sort of social order, world order that we've gotten to know uh, is really working uh, and how it's going to work in the future. So my first several lectures are going to deal with what I think of as the biggest myth of all, the biggest shaping myth 
that really structures the way we teach history, the way we write and talk about history all the time in ways we don't even think of. And that's the myth of the Middle Ages, right? The Middle Ages are the linchpin of how at least Western people talk about our history and where we came from, right? If you believe there's such a thing as the Middle Ages, uh, then it, that fits nicely into a simple three-part story of history, right? Uh, all great stories should have a beginning, a middle, and an end, right? So the Middle Ages conveniently serve that purpose as the middle part of the story. Uh, and what are the three parts? You probably can recite them uh, right now. Uh, ancient, medieval, modern, right? And medieval, of course, just comes from the Latin words meaning middle age or middle era. So you've got the ancient, the medieval, and the modern, right? And it's a very nice, neat, convenient story. You've got all these wonderful, splendorous things, all this art and philosophy uh, in the ancient world. Then, of course, the Middle Ages are the Dark Ages. They're the age of ignorance and barbarity and so forth. But then we get the Modern Age, where we wonderful moderns get to revive everything that was good in the ancient world. It's a very nice, convenient uh, story. It wraps up very nicely, uh, but... Uh, but it's a myth, and that's not to say that it's entirely false or that nothing about it is true, but it's a really arbitrary way of structuring history that uh, creates a lot of notions and a lot of assumptions that don't really uh, hold up. So uh, when we talk today about, about the Middle Ages uh, or use the word medieval, we tend to be talking about something horrible, right? Something we reject, something that disgusts us. You know, we talk about uh, war or genocide, uh, and we say these are medieval uh, barbarities. Or we talk about uh, ignorance and suppression of knowledge, and we call it uh, medieval. Uh, and it's a very neat and easy way to uh, project everything we might not like about ourselves or about our own world and dissociate ourselves from those things and distance them and say, no, they belong to that other uh, age. They're not really ours. Uh, there's a scene in the movie All About Eve, which is a movie from 1950, where uh, a stage actress meets with a theater critic uh, in her hotel room. Uh, and uh, the theater critic speaks to her uh, threateningly. Uh, and he tells her, after tonight, after you give your opening performance tonight, uh, you will belong to me. And the actress, of course, is, is disgusted and taken aback, and she says, belong to you? Uh, it sounds medieval, uh, like something out of an old melodrama. And the theater critic Addison says, so does the history of the world for the last 20 years. So this exchange, you know, encapsulates so much. So firstly, the actress, Eve, uh, is, is taking something that sounds wrong to her, that it sounds unequal, it sounds unfair, uh, and she pushes it away by saying that belongs to that other era, the Middle Ages, that age of brutality and darkness. Uh, and when the theater critic responds, he says, so does the history of the world for the last 20 years. And this movie is from 1950. So when he says that, he's talking about the Depression and World War II. And he's saying those things are somehow 
medieval. Of course, uh, worldwide financial collapse, depression, uh, mass uh, air warfare, genocide, nuclear warfare, these are all very modern things. These are all products of modern technology, modern economics, modern institutions, uh, and they were very new when they were witnessed in the 1930s and 40s. And yet because they have this sort of air of, of brutality and, and chaos, irrationality about them, uh, people can push them away and say, no, they're somehow, they're not really ours, they're not really of the modern era, they're somehow medieval. And I think this is just a, a beautiful, typical uh, instance of how people use the myth of the Middle Ages to manage uh, what they think and what they feel about their own lives and their own world, right? So, so this is the sort of convenient role that the Middle Ages still play uh, for us today in our imagination, in our way of understanding uh, the world. Now, to try to get more precise, uh, historians do still use this term, uh, the Middle Ages, uh, and it's built into uh, everything historians do, right? You go into uh, a history department office and you look at the list of faculty and you'll see, uh, you know, Carl Wennerland, historian of modern history, uh, Barbara Tannenbaum, uh, historian of medieval history, okay? Mark von Demirop, historian of ancient history. Uh, we divide up our faculties, we divide up books, magazines, uh, all of these things into ancient, medieval, modern. So this uh, this tripartite story of history uh, really define it practically defines history in the modern Western sense. Okay, there is no escaping it. Uh, and historians customarily there's no really good. Uh, shared definition of exactly what the Middle Ages are or what period we're talking about. Uh, it's a designation that really only applies to the Latin West, right? So it only applies to Central and Western Europe. It really makes no sense anywhere in the rest of the world. And it has very unclear boundaries. So basically, people tend to use Middle Ages to mean the entire era from the fall of the Roman Empire which happened more or less in the 400s AD, up until the Renaissance, which happened in the 14 uh, and 1500s. So uh, if you want to put nice, neat numbers on it, you can say it's basically the era from 500 to 1500, that age of about a thousand years. Okay, so a thousand year period. Why, why do we group <laughs> that entire age together under one label? Uh, it's it's uh, very unclear. Uh, there were enormous changes, exploration, inventions, political changes that happened within that age. Uh, and of course, there were also major continuities in how society worked, uh, uh, in law, in, in customs, in art that continued through the fall of the Western Roman Empire and that continued through from the late Middle Ages into the modern era. So it's pretty arbitrary why we snip out that block of time from about 500 to 1500. Uh, and there's not very much that you can point to that really unifies that era. Uh, but 
if I, for my own purposes, had to say, okay, what is it that distinguishes the Middle Ages, that makes it a distinct era uh, from the rest, uh, from what came before and what came after, uh, a, a nice way to put a fine point on it is simply to say that uh, it began with the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Okay, and, and I very specifically say Western Roman Empire. That's because the Roman Empire as such didn't fall, okay? Uh, that is a myth right there that we, have to, uh, that we have to dispel. The Roman Empire didn't fall in the 400s and 500s AD, at the beginning of the Middle Ages. Uh, only the Western Empire fell. But the Eastern Empire persisted just fine, okay? So the empire had already been administratively divided into eastern and western zones, and Constantine had established an eastern capital at Constantinople, uh, what's today Istanbul. And the eastern part of the empire continued to march on through the centuries and functioned perfectly well. It's only the western empire that gradually fell apart. And it was not a cataclysmic fall, you know, it wasn't a bunch of barbarians riding in and whopping everyone on the head and that was the end of it. It was a gradual breakdown in institutions and organization that over time led to the Western Empire uh, dissolving. Uh, while the Eastern Empire persisted until it was eventually conquered by the Ottoman Turks uh, in the 1400s, uh, so about a thousand years after. So you can roughly say the Middle Ages are basically the period of time when the Eastern Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire, continued uh, to rule uh, and, and function in the East, but the Western Empire had fallen apart. So it was an age when uh, Western Europe uh, or Western and Central Europe, where Latin was the main language of learning and diplomacy. Uh, it was an age when that area was very fragmented, decentralized, disorganized, and very weak and poor and isolated as compared to uh, the Eastern Mediterranean and, of course, the Islamic Middle East and Asia, where the really strong, vibrant civilizations were. So it was an era when, when Western Europe was really overshadowed by greater societies uh, to, to the east. And, uh, but past that, I'm not going to put down <laughs> uh, the Latin West any, any more than that. Uh, because um, as, as you'll see, the, the picture uh, is not as bleak as the myth of the Middle Ages would have us uh, believe. So that more or less is, is the era we're talking about. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, read off to you some basic uh, associations, notions, images that come to people's minds when they hear about the Middle Ages and that sort of structure, how we think of the Middle Ages. Uh, and then I'm going to review how much of those uh, perceptions and notions are accurate, okay? Uh, and then I'm going to talk about, lastly, I'm going to come back and I'm going to talk about why do we separate history into these three eras. Where did that notion come from, right? Uh, so as some scholars would say, I'm going to deconstruct the idea of the Middle Ages. Uh, but but once, once I've done that, then in, in later lectures, I'm going to then talk about how did society really work? Uh, how did law work? How did art and culture work, religion, uh, everyday life in this era? So that we can then start to build a more accurate picture of, of what the Middle Ages 
uh, really were. So let me go through. These are some things that students have said and that also friends, family, acquaintances have, have presented to me when I ask them, what do you think of when you think of the Middle Ages uh, or the medieval uh, world? So more or less, people think of the Middle Ages as uh, violent, ignorant, uh, intolerant, and intolerable. And I'll explain more what those specific associations are. Okay, it was a violent world. There was a lot of raping and pillaging. Uh, there were horrific public executions, uh, extensive use of torture. Uh, and this sort of violent character and violent impulses of the Middle Ages uh, see their expression most of all in the Crusades, right? A series of wars uh, and invasions of the Middle East that were motivated by religious hatred and greed and that involved deception and exploitation of ordinary people who were uh, deceived into taking part in the Crusades. The Middle Ages were ignorant. There was little or no science. Medicine was poor and involved uh, counterproductive practices like bloodletting. There was a great deal of superstition, belief in magic and witchcraft. Uh, people believed that the earth is flat and other uh, ridiculous primitive notions like that. Uh, and scientists who tried to uh, counter the superstitions and dogmas of the age uh, were often persecuted. Uh, and in more generally speaking, knowledge was controlled and suppressed by the church. Uh, and for this reason, a great deal of ancient knowledge of that fund of knowledge from the ancient Greco-Roman world was lost and many books uh, uh, of invaluable knowledge were, were destroyed in the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages were intolerant. Uh, the church had almost complete power over society uh, as illustrated in the Inquisition and in the practice of witch hunting, which killed many uh, innocent people, uh, particularly women. Uh, it was a, an age of hatred towards Jews and Muslims, uh, which was illustrated in the Crusades and also in more everyday persecution. It was also an age of suppression towards women and towards uh, homosexuality. Okay, so it would have been a very bad time for women and gays. Uh, and finally, the Middle Ages were intolerable. So they were an unpleasant era. They were racked by disease. Uh, the medievals had poor hygiene. They smelled bad and didn't wash. Okay, this is a great one because this is one that, that some people have actually pointed to as their foremost uh, impression that comes to mind most quickly and most strongly about the Middle Ages, that they, the people smelled bad and didn't wash. Okay, the food was bad, it was tasteless uh, and rotten. Uh, there was a great demand for spices in, in the Middle Ages because people's meat was rotten and they needed spices to mask the bad tastes and odors. Uh, it was an era of severe inequality and oppression the political system was feudalism, in which people were subordinated to their social superiors, uh, ultimately uh, the king or queen who had absolute power. And most people were subject to serfdom, 
Uh, so they weren't, they had no rights or freedoms. They could not move around. They were tied to the land and forced to work. Uh, this involved constant backbreaking labor. Uh, people had short lifespans with a life expectancy only around 35. Uh, it was finally a, a, a boring era, uh, devoid of great art, uh, music, theater, uh, and such art as there was was dull, uh, uncreative, uh, and tradition-bound, and basically uninteresting. And it was a sexually prudish era. Uh, because it was fervently religious, it was sexually prudish. And all in all, uh, it was a painful uh, era to live in, physically and emotionally. Uh, and I think this uh, image of the Middle Ages is summed up in certain depictions that we think of in popular culture like uh, Monty Python, uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, the sort of ridiculous uh, superstitions, you know, tell me again how sheep's bladder may be employed to prevent earthquake, uh, you know, and everyone's covered in dirt and uh, has have no teeth and, uh, you know, are groveling in mud. Uh, this is uh, the, the basic atmosphere of the Middle Ages uh, that we tend to think of. Okay, um, basically, we can see the Middle Ages are uh, the kind of blank slate on which we can project everything we don't want to be, right? Technologically primitive, superstitious, intolerant, uh, everything that we like to think we aren't, we ascribe those things to the Middle Ages. And hence, uh, the Middle Ages literally become in our minds, although this term isn't used as much anymore, they literally become in our minds the Dark Ages, right? Uh, the, the, the sort of night in contrast to our day, the daytime, the light, the enlightenment of, of the modern world. Okay. Is any of this true? Some of these things are at least partly true. Some of them are true only of certain periods or certain places in the Middle Ages. Some of them are true of the Middle Ages, but are also equally true of all of history before and after the Middle Ages, uh, or of other ages of history. And some of them are just false. Okay. There was a good deal uh, of pillaging in medieval warfare. Uh, a lot of medieval, especially in the early Middle Ages, a lot of medieval war involved uh, destroying your opponent's crops and land and villages. Uh, so there was a lot of war, and 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 it was uh, a violent era. Uh, but if we look at the grand sweep of all of human history, the basic trend tends to be that in each uh, that that violent death among humankind has been very slowly diminishing, right? We've been getting less and less violent very, very gradually over time with a lot of ups and downs. And so it's reasonable to suppose we can't really tell uh, in detail exactly how violent the Middle Ages were because we don't have complete records. But it seems reasonable to estimate that probably the Middle Ages were uh, slightly less violent uh, than the ancient world that preceded them 
and slightly more violent than the modern world we live in now. But it's really hard to put any stock in that generalization. It's almost impossible to compare. We don't have enough information. We don't have enough data. And there, of course, have been massive outbreaks of horrible violence in the modern world. The world wars, uh, genocides, uh, and probably the, the biggest a war ever in known history, the Taiping Rebellion in China, which we never talk about, probably killed a bit more people than World War II. Uh, and altogether, it's hard to extrapolate generalizations about the modern world when we have only 500 years to look at. And in the scale of human history, that's really a very short period. And it's hard to know, are terrible outbreaks of violence like World War II or the Taiping Rebellion typical? Or are they unusual? Are they aberrations? And how do you then compare that to the thousand years of the Middle Ages? So basically, uh, there certainly was war. There certainly was violence in the Middle Ages. Does that mean it was more violent of an era? Was it more violent than what came before or what came after? Probably not really. Uh, there were public executions, as there have been frequently in the modern world uh, as well. And in fact, the great heyday of public executions in Europe, at least, was really the 1700s. Uh, you, you know, public hangings were happening at practically a breakneck pace, uh, you know, pun not intended, in France and Britain in the 1700s. And that ultimately culminated in the guillotine and, uh, and the reign of terror. Uh, so public executions are not something special to the Middle Ages. Neither is torture. Okay, torture is still, uh, still common today. Our own government practices it, although they use euphemisms for it. Uh, so torture is not particularly uh, a, a distinguishing feature of the Middle Ages. Uh, and then there are the Crusades. People think of the Crusades. Now, the Crusades are very important. Uh, they, they were very uh, significant transformative events for Europe and for uh, medieval society. Uh, I'm going to talk about the Crusades in later lectures, uh, but it's important to pin down uh, a few basic facts about the Crusades. Uh, there's a lot of discussion today about what motivated the Crusades and how horrible were they? Uh, they were wars. Uh, they involved a lot of destruction, a lot of death. There were massacres uh, perpetrated by crusaders. Uh, was it? Were they motivated by religious hatred? Not so much. There isn't really evidence of that. Uh, it seems more that they actually were motivated by a desire to control Jerusalem and the pilgrimage routes to Jerusalem. So they really had... Christian religious motivations. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Uh, so the, the reasons for the Crusades were basically, it seems, the, the reasons that people stated at the time. Uh, and they, they were not motivated by greed. Okay, that is completely unsupportable uh, by the facts. Uh, Palestine and the city of Jerusalem were fairly poor. They, uh, you had very little chance of getting rich. Uh, by going on crusade, there was not much wealth there uh, to be had. Uh, you were far more likely to die uh, going on crusade than you were to get any significant amount of loot or to come back uh, to Europe with any sort of wealth. Uh, and every, everyone knew it. 
uh, but they kept going on crusade anyway uh, for social and political and religious uh, reasons. Uh, so they were not in... Uh, the notion that they were motivated by greed simply does not hold up at all under, uh, under examination. But there are complicated social and political uh, factors that led to the Crusades happening when they did. And we'll talk about that uh, later. The Crusades are, are, are a fascinating subject, and, and I'll get into those much more. Okay, it, was it an ignorant era? Was there little or no science? Well, certainly there wasn't science in the modern sense. There weren't peer-reviewed journals. There weren't uh, scientific uh, faculties. Uh, there weren't... Uh, you know, randomized, controlled studies. There weren't uh, replicatable experiments uh, in the Middle Ages, but there was a great interest in understanding nature and often understanding nature through examination, experimentation. Uh, the uh, a lot of the research and experimentation was into optics and mechanics and other practical fields. A lot of it took place in the monasteries and priories uh, and schools of of medieval Europe, uh, led by uh, by monks or or priests. Um, there was something of a of an industrial revolution in the High Middle Ages. So basically, in the 11, 1200s. Uh, there was a great uh, movement of advancement uh, in uh, in all kinds of uh, practical inventions, uh, mills, water mills, windmills, uh, glasses, eyeglasses were invented in the High Middle Ages, mechanical clocks, uh, and also medievals adopted and improved upon a lot of important technologies from outside of Europe that came in from Asia. Things like compasses, uh, gunpowder, printing. So really the High and Late Middle Ages were a time of great technological advancement. Uh, people uh, did not believe ridiculous notions like the Earth is flat. Okay, that's a lie. Uh, everyone in the Middle Ages knew that the Earth was round. That had been preserved, that had been uh, discovered and, and demonstrated by ancient Greek mathematicians, and that knowledge was preserved and passed on and used in the Middle Ages. People didn't think the Earth was flat. Uh, and certainly there was what we would call superstition, right? Belief in unseen powers, belief, basically just belief in things that we don't believe in anymore, which we now label as superstition. Uh, but, you know, basically all eras of history, almost by definition, all past eras have believed in things that we don't believe in anymore, right? Knowledge and belief change and develop. Uh, there was not so much... Uh, belief in magic and witchcraft, as would come later, and I'll talk about that more. Really, uh, the modern era saw the peak of belief in, in witchcraft, as well as uh, alchemy, astrology, all of those ideas really flourished more in the 15 and 1600s than in the Middle Ages. Uh, now, probably all of you at some point have heard the assertion that in the Middle Ages, the church suppressed knowledge, right? Okay, so the Latin Western church was the one unifying, overarching social institution that, that spanned throughout Western Europe. Uh, 
Uh, that was it. There was really nothing else. And it's true that a lot of knowledge from the ancient world was lost uh, during the Middle Ages. So it seems natural to basically blame the church and say, oh, the church must have been superstitious, obscurantist, uh, and hated this ancient knowledge and so s controlled it and suppressed it. Okay, this is not true. This is absolutely false. The church did its level best to preserve and pass on ancient knowledge, uh, classic philosophy, natural science, geography. Uh, it did its level best to preserve and pass on this knowledge, but it was a very difficult job. Okay, there was no paper in the early Middle Ages. Paper only came in later, and there was no printing press until the 1400s. So all knowledge had to be put down on parchment. Parchment was very expensive and difficult to produce, and it didn't last forever. After being used for a couple hundred years, parchment, just like paper, will fall apart. Uh, and even if you're not using it and it doesn't fall apart, it's very liable at some point to burn up in a fire or get destroyed in a flood or get stolen or pillaged in a war. So over time, Books and documents were lost, okay? This is the natural effect of time. Uh, and it's always been a problem. It's always been a difficulty throughout history. Uh, so during the Middle Ages, the church poured a tremendous amount of resources and labor into laboriously copying over ancient books and manuscripts uh, and also adding to them uh, new philosophy, new uh, histories, uh, new theology were written uh, and uh, copied hundreds or thousands of times over during the Middle Ages, which was highly skilled, highly labor-intensive work. Uh, but the 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 mainly monks and in the church and also nuns and others uh, really devoted uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of man hours to trying to preserve that fund of knowledge. And some of it did manage to survive down to the modern era, but a lot of it uh, also was lost. So that's something I'll, I'll talk about more later uh, as well. Okay, the Middle Ages were intolerant. Uh, one of the first words that, that comes to a lot of people's lips when I ask them about the Middle Ages is inquisition. Okay. Inquisition is a system of investigating uh, crimes, which goes back to Roman law. It comes out of Roman law, and it was used in the Middle Ages sometimes by the church specifically to investigate and punish the crime of heresy. So that's, that's the crime of distorting or corrupting church teachings by baptized Christians. Uh, so this legal form was sometimes used in the Middle Ages, uh, but not very frequently. Uh, it, was, it was not really a major part of medieval society. The Spanish Inquisition was the first really extensive, highly organized Inquisition that really sought to permanently monitor and control uh, people's thoughts and words and tried to stamp out, permanently stamp out heresy in a, in a given society. So the Spanish Inquisition is the big Inquisition, the one that we, that, you know, Torquemada and, and the torture chambers, the one that we think of when we say Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition was not a medieval institution. It was an early modern 
institution. Okay, it was started in the 1480s and it continued as a permanent institution in Spanish society through the 15, 16, and 1700s. Same with the Portuguese Inquisition. It was, it was an institution in the 15, 16, and 1700s. So in other words, the Inquisition is early modern. It's not medieval. Okay? Same with witch hunting. Okay? The, the effort to root out and punish and execute witches, this was not part of the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, the church and royal authorities were consistent and clear. Witches don't exist. Okay? They labeled the idea of witchcraft as a superstition, and they strongly discouraged and usually forbade their subjects from hunting witches. It was considered a crime to hunt witches because witches don't really exist. Some people may have some sort of magical powers or sorcery, but they are not diabolical and they do not have the kind of extensive dangerous powers that paranoid people think. The era of the witch hunt in Europe was the same time period as the Spanish Inquisition. It was from the late 1400s through the 15 and 1600s and gradually died out in the 1700s. In other words, the era of witch hunting was the Renaissance, not the Middle Ages. Okay? And this is these are very important points. The Spanish Inquisition and the witch hunting era are modern. They're during the era of the Renaissance and Reformation. They are not medieval. And this is, I think, a very important indication that you should see right off that all is not as it seems, right? The modern things that we like, the things we tend to celebrate about ourselves, our science and technology, our rationalism, our tolerance of minorities, our sense of equality and democracy, these things don't all go together. They do not march forward together. They are separate, and they often work against each other, okay? The era of the Renaissance was an era of great philosophical and scientific flowering. It was an era of exploration, and it was also an era of extreme repression and persecution, right? Repression of heresies, repression of supposed witchcraft. It was an, also an era of superstition, when people took these ideas like witchcraft very seriously, okay? And when we look back at the Middle Ages, we can't simply say all these bad things that we disapprove of, you know, ignorance, suppression of knowledge, intolerance, that those things belong to the Middle Ages, okay? The story is much, much more complicated than that. And, and that's what, you know, I'll get into uh, more and what I'm hoping to illustrate, okay? Uh, there was extensive persecution of Jews and Muslims. Islam was usually illegal in most Western Christian states throughout the Middle Ages, although there were some, such as in Spain, certain kingdoms in Spain, that did allow uh, Jews and Muslims uh, to coexist and to practice their religions. Uh, Jews lived in many places all around Europe in the Middle Ages, uh, and there was periodic persecution, violence, and expulsion of Jews, but those happened almost entirely in the High and Late Middle Ages. They, there was much less anti-Semitism in the early Middle Ages, the era that we sometimes call the Dark Ages. 
That's actually when coexist, peaceful coexistence and tolerance of Jews was the most common. And it's later, uh, in the later Middle Ages, that anti-Semitism becomes more intense and violence against Jews uh, becomes common. So this is one of the characterizations of the Middle Ages that in some ways uh, is partly true, but more of particular periods and particular places, not really in general. Uh, the Middle Ages saw suppression of women and homosexuality. Uh, again, this is somewhat true, but it's actually less true of the Middle Ages than it is of the early modern era. In the Middle Ages, uh, the genders certainly were not equal. There was sexism, there were different social roles and stations assigned to men and women. But at the same time, uh, in the Middle Ages, uh, social class and birth were extremely important and they often could trump gender so a woman who was of high birth who was the head of a noble family or who inherited uh, a royal or imperial throne as sometimes happened could gain very extensive power uh, women also even commoner women usually could control some of their own property uh, they could act for themselves legally and these sorts of rights and prerogatives tended to be taken away again in the 15, 16, 1700s. So uh, some historians, although this is very controversial and it's hard to generalize across the board, some historians have actually argued that the 19th century was the real low point for women in the Western world. Uh, and that in many ways, women had more freedom and more status in the Middle Ages than they did in the uh, in the era from the 1500s up all the way through the 1800s. Uh, so again, women were not treated equally. There was gender uh, oppression, but it can be easily exaggerated. Uh, there also was persecution of homosexuality, but interestingly, the persecution of homosexuality seems to be in a lot of ways concurrent with the persecution of Jews in the sense that uh, people seem to not pay much attention to it in the early Middle Ages, but as Europe enters an era of greater prosperity uh, and cultural flourishing in the high and late Middle Ages, then you see more severe draconian laws punishing and suppressing homosexuality, and you start to see even executions uh, for homosexuality, uh, or as they wouldn't have called it homosexuality, but rather they would have grouped uh, sex between men or between women under the larger heading of sodomy. And sodomy simply was the general word, meaning any sort of unacceptable or taboo sex. Uh, and concern about sodomy and severe punishments of, of sodomy increase in the later Middle Ages and, and again in the early modern era. Okay, the, the uh, hangings of people who engaged in homosexual sex, the hangings of people who ran taverns or bars that catered to homosexuals, th those happened in the 1700s, okay? Uh, and so severe repression of homosexuality is actually more uh, glaring and more violent in the early modern era than it is in the Middle Ages, okay? Were the Middle Ages uh, intolerable in the sense of unpleasant or, or, or hellish? Uh, certainly there was disease, much more than we would be used to in a modern Western country today. Uh, and you could die of any number of diseases, smallpox, malaria, uh, 
at practically any time anywhere in Europe. And these diseases did break out periodically all around uh, Europe. However, again, crowd diseases feed on crowds, right? They feed on large concentrations of people, uh, particularly large cities. And the Middle Ages didn't have a lot of large cities. Rather, the modern era has more large cities. And hence, the modern era has seen more severe outbreaks uh, of deadly disease uh, than the Middle Ages did. It's not because they had better hygiene or medicine in the Middle Ages, uh, but it's because of just how concentrated the population is. Now, you might be saying, wait a second, what about bubonic plague? Uh, and the Black Death. Well, certainly, uh, the the outbreak of bubonic plague uh, in the 1300s was devastating. Uh, however, that started in 1347, so we're already talking about we're you know more than three quarters through the Middle Ages. Uh, it's something that happened fairly late in the Middle Ages, uh, and outbreaks of plague continued frequently up through. The modern era, okay? Uh, the worst outbreak of plague that ever happened, for example, in London, actually was in 1666, and it was called, uh, or excuse me, in 1665, and it was called the Great uh, Visitation. Uh, so it was really in the modern era when you have these growing, crowded, unsanitary cities that plague really became uh, just as deadly again as it had been back in the 1300s. So plague is just as much a modern problem as it is medieval, and yet again we associate it in our minds with uh, with the Middle Ages. Did they have uh, poor hygiene, uh, and did they smell bad? They bathed, okay? People in the Middle Ages bathed, there was a very extensive soap industry. Every town had soap producers. People uh, bathed and cleaned themselves with soap fairly uh, frequently. There also were bathhouses in cities and large towns, and uh, and and bathing uh, was very common. Even if you were in a small town dwelling where you couldn't bathe at home, you could go to public baths or commercial baths. Uh, so. The notion that they smelled bad is a complete fabrication. They didn't smell any worse than modern people. Um, and yet, I think that this myth has persisted largely because how important the sense of smell is. You know, our, our sense of uh, disgust towards things we, we dislike, things that are taboo, things that we want to stay away from, we associate with bad smells. And so this has really uh, lodged itself, I think, very deeply in people's minds, the idea that medievals smelled bad, and that's uh, very revealing. Uh, their food was perfectly good. They had a cuisine that used herbs and spices and sophisticated cooking techniques, uh, just like uh, today. They didn't have dull food. Uh, and, in fact, uh, the notion that they wanted spices from the East because their meat was rotten, uh, this is a really good one, because really the the medieval's food was fresher than ours okay <laughs> this was an overwhelmingly rural agrarian society people were eating 
uh, meat from animals that they slaughtered themselves, often at home. They were eating uh, vegetables and fruits and herbs that they grew at home. Okay, it was, it, was, it was fresh. It was more fresh than what we eat today. Okay, so this is a great, you know, crazy upside-down myth uh, that their food was somehow rotten or bad. Um, in fact, it's probably the opposite is true, not only in that their food was more fresh, but also uh, in the era of the Renaissance, so in, in the beginning of the modern era, it became customary to breed plants to have bigger, uh, more dramatic blooms. Uh, so you would hybridize plants to, to look visually more attractive. But when you do so, you tend to lose much of the scent, right? So that means that medieval herbs and flowers like lavender uh, or sage or other herbs actually had a stronger smell uh, and were more fragrant and more flavorful than the ones that we are accustomed to today. Uh, and there are stories, for, for instance, of medieval monks who, who said that they uh, could always tell what the cook in the monastery was cooking that day because they could smell the herbs he was picking in the garden and they had that strong uh, an odor. So uh, probably medieval food, although they didn't have certain ingredients like tomatoes or, or maize that came from the New World, uh, they had a, a smaller set of ingredients to use. They probably made better food than what we are used to eating uh, today. Okay. It was an age of severe inequality and oppression. Well, you know, it's hard to argue with that. It certainly was a very unequal world. Uh, it was a world um, where people were divided into different classes by birth uh, and where it was very rare to move between those classes. It was not a world of social mobility in general uh, for almost all people. And you've probably heard this term feudalism, that this was an age of feudalism. Okay, well, feudalism is, uh, is a word that is now very controversial among scholars because it's very hard to pin down any clear definition of exactly what it means and if you do come down to a clear definition, you tend to find that it never actually happened. Okay, so the idea, the term feudalism was not used in the Middle Ages. It rather was invented in the 15 and 1600s by French lawyers and jurists who had a political agenda. They were trying to justify the authority of the king uh, and bolster his right to control land in France. And they basically invented this notion that, well, back in the early Middle Ages, the king controlled everything, he controlled the land, but then he would grant uh, pieces of land to his vassals in return for their military service. So you may have heard this in school, this idea, okay, so you have a monarch, he allows nobles to control a piece of land if the nobles swear fealty and, and give him military service. Okay, this never really happened. Okay, there's no record of any such exchange happening. Rather, you owed military service to the king because he was the king. Okay, uh, and as for holding uh, a piece of land 
in fief. That's the term they used, F-I-E-F. Nobles had fiefs all the time. It's just a certain form of property holding. It's not the result of any sort of bargain or exchange with the king. So that idea of feudalism is a false myth. Okay, if you reject that, you can then try to adjust or change the meaning of feudalism to mean something else or to mean something more broad, to mean, you know, agrarian society or a society of unequal classes. But all of these definitions are so broad that you, you can speak of practically any society as feudal. If you say, well, feudalism means there are landlords who control the land and then peasants have to pay them rent, well, that's the way property works in New York City today. Uh, landlords own the buildings, sometimes whole blocks, and the tenants have to pay rent to the landlords. It's, it's the same system. So, you know, if, if, if you say medieval France was feudal, then you have to say that modern New York City is feudal. Uh, so basically what you find is when you examine this word feudalism and try to pin down what it means, it always breaks down. Uh, so a lot of scholars now today simply reject it uh, and say it's not a useful word, uh, it's not describing anything that really happened in the Middle Ages. So let's just drop it. However, what we can say fairly broadly and consistently about the Middle Ages is that it was an unequal society that was divided into three estates, right? Three classes or estates. Uh, the first estate being the clergy, the people of the church. The second estate is the nobility, which is technically the warrior class. And the third estate is everybody else, right? Laborers of all other kinds who are mostly peasants, right? And this is broadly true. This is basically true of the medieval Latin uh, West. Now, were most people serfs? Well, being a serf uh, is a legal status, right? A serf is a peasant who is tied to the land, who has no right to move, and who is obligated to perform labor for the lord of that land. Okay, serfdom did happen in some places in the Middle Ages, but most peasants were not serfs. Okay, serfdom was not very common. It was not the normal state of affairs for peasants in the Middle Ages. And in fact, uh, peasants in the Middle Ages did have extensive rights and protections under law and custom. Uh, and uh, and they tended to live a, a fairly tolerable lifestyle, as I'll talk about more. They were not, you know, sunk into the misery of serfdom. Rather, the heyday of serfdom is, again, the 15, 16, 1700s, specifically in Eastern Europe. So when we're talking about Eastern Germany, Poland, Russia, that's where serfdom was most widespread and most severe. And it was not in the Middle Ages, but rather in the modern era. Okay, serfdom in Russia, for instance, was not abolished until 1861, uh, and serfs there truly had no rights. Uh, so, so serfdom is not an accurate picture of the status or lifestyle of most uh, medieval peasants. Okay, was life boring? Uh, and were you co doing constant backbreaking work? Uh, well, medieval people, including peasants, uh, observed a very complicated ritual calendar. Uh, not only Sundays, but also all sorts of festivals, holidays, saints' days, uh, extensive long celebrations at Easter time and Christmas time. And when you add up all of these feast days and holidays during which peasants were not expected to work, 
you actually had about a third of your days off. Okay, so they had more time off than we do. <laughs> they had more time off than we do. There was more leisure time. There was extensive celebration. And these celebrations not only would involve church worship, but they also would involve revelries, dancing, drinking. Uh, and you have a lot of medieval people, especially churchmen, often lamenting you know, how drunken and disorderly the peasants were because that's the sort of lifestyle uh, that they actually lived. Now, that's not to say they didn't do very hard work under very harsh conditions. They did, but it was expected that you would also have leisure and you would also have, uh, you would have fun. Okay, that was part of the medieval lifestyle. Uh, the idea of a farmer or, or an agricultural laborer going out into the fields and doing backbreaking work basically every day without respite, that's actually a model of life that was created more by the English Puritans, right? The Puritans are the ones who abolished Christmas and abolished all these saints days uh, and and Easter celebrations and who basically reduced your time off down to just Sundays, right? That That's something that early modern Protestants did. It's not something that you saw in the Middle Ages. Uh, was life boring? Well, you know, that's a matter of taste. It's hard to say. But there certainly was music. There was theater. Uh, there was storytelling. Uh, there was folk art as well as fine art of all sorts. Uh, and, of course, there was creativity. Uh, and a lot of that we don't know. You know, most people in the Middle Ages were illiterate. So we don't have a lot of writ written records about their poetry, their songs. Uh, their folk art. We do know some, you know, for example, there are the Robin Hood stories. Uh, the earliest Robin Hood ballad that we have that survives is from uh, about 1400. So, but we know that those stories went back much farther uh, before then. Uh, but it's hard to know uh, a lot about this folk culture and folk art. Uh, as for high art, uh, there was, there was, of course, Gothic architecture, and the highly sophisticated styles, as well as engineering and technology that went into building the great Gothic cathedrals. Uh, there was uh, vernacular literature, so this is the time when we see the birth of literature in the, uh, in the vernacular languages like Italian, uh, English, French, uh, a lot of these great authors, uh, Dante, Chaucer, uh, Marie de France, are really definitive in in shaping these new literary national schools, uh, and there was uh, and there were other forms of, of art and philosophy. So if you were a more learned person in the upper classes, there was plenty of art and culture to enjoy. And if you were in the lower classes, uh, again, there was plenty of art uh, to enjoy. Uh, did people live short lifespans? It's true that. Uh, although we can't know with any precision, the average life expectancy probably was somewhere in around 35, you know, somewhere in your 30s through most of the Middle Ages. Uh, but this is deceptive. This doesn't mean that a lot of 35-year-olds were dying. Rather, uh, the average is so low because there was so much infant and child mortality, right? There was, it was very common for uh, infants and young children to succumb to diseases that they were being exposed to for the first time, 
right? Uh, particularly, of course, smallpox. Uh, the first time you get smallpox, uh, it's very dangerous. Once you've had it and survived it, then you're resistant to it for the rest of your life, and it's probably never going to affect you again. So what we see is a lot of children die early on in childhood, but then once you get through childhood, once you're a teenager, then you have a pretty good chance of living a long time. So if you were to pick out a medieval person who was 19 or 20 years old, you could reasonably guess that that person has, you know, is probably going to live to 70, 75. Uh, so lifespans uh, were very close to the lifespan we know today if you made it through childhood. Okay. Uh, so this problem of, of infant and child mortality, it really is mostly due to crowd diseases, and it's something that would continue to be a terrible problem really right on up to the 19th century when you start getting improved sanitation and improved medicine to deal with uh, to deal with these problems and it's really been even more recent really in the 20th century that we've come to think of a newborn child as presumably looking forward to a life of 70 or, or 80 years were they sexually prudish well I mentioned there were all those extensive celebrations and revelries in the medieval calendar, and many of them, such as May Day, involved sex. Uh, there was plenty of sex, uh, there was plenty of expression of sexuality. These people were not Puritans in the Middle Ages. Puritanism did not exist. You were expected to live a chaste lifestyle if you were a member of the clergy, but for commoners there was a lot of uh, sexual expression, sexual experimentation. Uh, sometimes uh, royal governments or the church would try to suppress it. Sometimes they would simply uh, tolerate it. Uh, there was extensive prostitution, and prostitution was legal in most jurisdictions. Okay, so this is one of the respects in which the Middle Ages actually were more sexually permissive than our own time. Okay? So all of these things I've, I've gone through and, and explained uh, what was accurate or inaccurate or partly accurate, at least uh, to the best of my understanding, the best of my knowledge. And one last thing that I skipped over but that I'm going to point out, I'm going to go back to the idea that the Middle Ages were ignorant. Uh, this, is a, this is a very ironic one, considering that uh, the main centers of learning, research, and teaching in our world today are universities. And universities began in the Middle Ages. Uh, all of the sort of great prestigious old universities in Europe, like Oxford, Cambridge, the Sorbonne, you know, Heidelberg, Bologna, and Padova, Salamanca, all of them were started in the Middle Ages. And this institutional form of having a faculty and a student body and courses uh, that we think of as as a college or university, it started from the cathedral schools that clustered around uh, priories attached to cathedrals in Europe. Uh, the, the first you know, example is, is University of Paris. That was the biggest and most prestigious university in the Middle Ages. It began as simply a gathering of people who wanted to learn from the monks who were attached to Notre Dame in Paris. Uh, so the achievements that we think of, that we're most proud of, and that we often think of as the most modern, 
and as the centers of high culture and learning in our modern world actually have their roots in the Middle Ages. Uh, so this is, I think, uh, a good point to point out last because it's such a crowning irony of the way we talk about the Middle Ages and the way we sort of sniff and, and, uh, and sneer and, and hold ourselves as so superior to the medieval world and medieval people. Uh, now, before I end this particular lecture uh, and get into later lectures into the details of what the Middle Ages were and how they worked, uh, I'm going to bring up the question again, why... Uh, why do we talk about the Middle Ages as a coherent period of time? Uh, and why do we see them in this very dim light? Uh, people in the Middle Ages didn't walk around saying, we're living in the Middle Ages. At least very few of them did. Most people, whether they were learned or not, didn't think of themselves as living in the Middle Ages. Obviously, that, that doesn't make any sense, right? We don't talk about ourselves today living in the middle period. Uh, and people back in, in these centuries didn't either. So where did this notion come from that there's this block of time that we can separate out from the, roughly from the fall of the Western Empire until the Renaissance that we can call the Middle Ages? Most people in, the, in these centuries believed that they were living in the last age, or the final age. They were living in the Christian era, and they believed that was the last age of humankind. So for them, when they looked back at history, they separated uh, time into periods based on great cosmic events, right? Events in which divine providence uh, reshaped the world, mainly biblical events, okay? Uh, the creation, uh, the fall of man, uh, the flood, the exodus, right? They use these cosmic events to separate history into epochs. And from their point of view, they were living in the last epoch. Uh, so the death and resurrection of Christ inaugurated the Christian era. And they believed that this Christian era would continue until the second coming of Christ. And that would then usher in uh, Judgment Day and the final end of history. Okay, uh, so this this phrase, the end of history, should <laughs> should maybe bring up some associations for some of you. Uh, many people always tend to think that they are living close to or at the end of history, and that's what medieval people thought. Uh, they thought they were in the final age, which was the Christian age. They didn't say we're living in the Middle Age. Uh, however. There, were, uh, there was a small minority of people, a small fringe school of thought that emerged in the high and late Middle Ages who did walk around saying, we're in the Middle Age, okay? So there were some people who did think and talk this way, and they uh, started with a mystical, apocalyptic preacher in Italy named uh, Joachim of Fiore, and Joachim of Fiore put forward a sort of grand cosmic scheme of human life that changed and replaced the old way 
of separating time into epochs. He argued that, in fact, there were three ages. Okay, this should sound familiar. There were three ages. There was the first age, that was the age of the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, which ended with Christ. Christ had ushered in the Middle Age. And then the second coming of Christ would not immediately end history, but rather it would begin a future age, a third age, a millennium of peace. And he named these three ages by the three persons of the Trinity. So the early age, the age of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, he called the age of the Father, right? It was the age of, of law. Then the Christian age was the age of the Son. Uh, straightforward enough, Christ is the Son in the Trinity. And then the millennium of peace that was to follow was the age of the Spirit, in which people would have direct uh, communion with God and freedom would rule. Uh, so it was the age of the Father, uh, the Son, and the Spirit, and he believed that he was living in the Middle Age, the Age of the Son, which would soon end uh, and be replaced by the Millennium uh, of Peace. And this was a kind of uh, edgy and unusual notion that the Church was not entirely comfortable with, but for several hundred years, they didn't formally condemn it either. And it actually gathered a certain number of followers around Europe, uh, mainly learned people, some of them clergy, and most of all in Italy. Uh, he, there were so-called Joachimites, people who subscribed to this apocalyptic notion uh, of history. So this was a school of thought that was, uh, it was apocalyptic, but it was optimistic. Most apocalypticists actually tend to be optimistic. They tend to be looking forward towards some kind of savior or some kind of transformation that will bring about, you know, peace, uh, harmony, happiness. This is what most apocalypticists tend to, to imagine. So these Joachimites uh, are a kind of fringe school of thought, particularly common in Italy, and they tend to be underground because their ideas are not totally popular and they're not entirely, they're not embraced by the church, certainly, although they aren't necessarily explicitly condemned either. Uh, so this is where, this is the first time that we see someone putting forward this idea that, that history fits into three ages, three eras. The same sort of notion, this tripartite model of history gets taken up again in the 1400s, specifically in Florence, among Florentine humanists, people that we today would call Renaissance humanists. They also uh, divide history into these three parts. Uh, and particularly a certain historian, Leonardo Bruni, writes a history of the Florentine people, and he separates it into ancient medieval, the middle, and modern. Now, he switches the criteria a bit. So rather than saying the transition from the first age to the second age is Christ, rather he says the transition from the first age to the second age is the fall of the Roman Empire. 
Uh, and that's the way he talked about it, because he was a Westerner, and he didn't really care about the Eastern Empire. So he said, okay, the ancient world ended, and ancient Florence ended with the fall of the Roman Empire. Then we've had this middle era, but now we today are standing at the cusp of the modern era. And we are standing at the cusp of the modern era because we are reaching back and reviving the wisdom and greatness of the ancients, right? So the three eras are a cycle, right? There's the efflorescence, the brilliance of the ancient world. There's the sinking into darkness of the medieval world. And then there is the rise back into light and back into greatness of the the final age, the modern age. So basically, these humanists like Leonardo Bruni are taking up Joachim of Fiore's model of separating history. He's just uh, changing the markers. They're no longer cosmic events or events of divine providence. They're human events, right? And what uh, leads into the Second Age is human ignorance and human violence and barbarity, which human beings now must redeem themselves from through study, wisdom, enlightenment, uh, recovery of the ancient. And the savior now that's going to lead the world out of the darkness of the Second Age into the Third and Final Age, uh, the Age uh, of Peace and of Freedom, is not Christ, but rather it's human beings. It's Florentine scholars like Bruni himself. So this idea that we are modern and that the moderns are recovering the ancient, that this is a rebirth, a renaissance of the ancient, it's basically the second coming of Christ just revised a bit so that instead of Christ descending from the clouds, it's instead humanist scholars who are redeeming humankind from their fallenness uh, and from the darkness of, of the Middle Era. So what I'm trying to show here is, is, not that, uh, is not exactly that the Middle Ages never happened, but it's that uh, there's an agenda behind uh, separating history out in this way, and that this way of portraying history, uh, ancient, medieval, modern, uh, really caught on among scholars and has persisted, I think, mainly because it's very flattering to scholars. It places scholars in this sort of savior-redeemer role uh, as the people who will bring history into its its greatest uh, and last age. Um, and I think it's no accident that uh, as the modern world has carried on, we often see scholars, philosophers, writers, again, uh, over and over invoking this idea that they are going to bring about the final uh, age of history. They are going to bring about, in a sense, the millennium, as Joachim of Fiore uh, would have called it. So what we need to do is we need to understand both what is valuable and useful and enlightening about this model of history that says there was an age from... Uh, from the fall of the Western Empire until the so-called Renaissance. Uh, we need to understand what that age was and how it really worked. And in doing so, we also need to see what is distorting 
right? And we need to get past this need for self-flattering myths and myths that uh, that uh, idealize uh, our own time as simply uh, the obvious, obviously superior uh, fulfillment uh, of processes from from the past. Uh, it's it's not that simple. So what I'm going to do is uh, in some more lectures I'm going to examine and try to explain how the Middle Ages really worked and I'm going to on the one hand try to be impartial and present uh, uh, a reasonably accurate picture of the medieval era in all its complexity in all its different periods in all its different uh, meanings uh, and maybe at the end we'll end up reaffirming some of the same ideas, some of the same myths that we started out with. Uh, maybe we'll end up uh, with different myths, or maybe we'll just end up with confusion. And I think any of those results are fine. Uh, as I have often said to students when I bring up subjects like the Bible or the medieval church uh, or the Enlightenment, uh, I say, I want you to come out of this more confused than when you came in. Uh, and maybe that's what will end up happening, at least for a lot of us. Uh, but at least it will be a better informed uh, and more clear-headed confusion than the mythology that we came in with. Uh, so uh, that'll be it uh, for today. And in upcoming lectures, I'm going to talk about uh, what life was like and how it worked in the Latin West uh, during that era when the Eastern Roman Empire continued uh, to rule, but the Western Roman Empire was gone. And if you, uh, if you like these uh, lectures, please uh, go to my Patreon page, uh, which is under the same title, Historiansplaining and consider giving some support. I've got to pay the electric bill. Thanks. That's me.